Luke chapter 2. So I can't even background on some of the things that I'm thinking about through this, this message. Let me tell you that every year around this time of year, I look for a new devotion to walk through during the Christmas season. Christmas has always been, is my favorite time of year. I even like that it gets cold around Christmas. Usually, I don't really like a 70 degrees Christmas. You know, I want it to be cold. In fact, I don't like cold weather, but I'm fine if it would get cold from today through January 1st, snow all the time through there, and then warm up to 70 degrees on January 2nd. I'd be perfectly fine with that. Like, I love Christmas music. I love the experience. And one of the things that I love is is exploring this story again and again through different people's eyes. And so every Christmas I look for, look around, see if I can find a devotional to walk through this Advent season. This year I got an email from somebody promoting something. And a lot of those just kind of go, um, you know this, many of you get those kind of emails. I just get emails all day long that just I just hit uh, delete on them as soon as I can or figure out a way to filter them out. But this one caught my attention because the title of the devotional was the Christmas we didn't expect. And I couldn't help but think about the fact that that describes what this year is going to be for many people. It's the Christmas we didn't expect. This year is different. For many, Christmas will be different than it's ever been. Now, for some, you are using Christmas as that point in your life to say, no, I'm going to be as normal as it can possibly be. But for most people, it's going to be a little different. Now, here's the reality and the kind of the point of that devotional that I'm walking through is the first Christmas was also different than most people expected. In fact, than almost everybody expected. And you could say that the point of telling the Christmas story in the book of Luke is to remind people the number of people that miss the true meaning and relevance of Christmas when it happened. So many people were in and around the events of the first Christmas. We're actually going to look today at a place where there were probably hundreds of people around and two people really understood it outside of Mary and Joseph. Reminding me of a story that I've told you before, but um, it's a story that I just think is fascinating. One of the world's most famous violinists is a guy named Joshua Bell, and I'm not real familiar with Joshua Bell and wouldn't recognize him, and that's true of most people, but the truth is he is a masterful player of the violin, one of the world's best. In 2007, he was playing a group of concerts in D.C. where the minimum ticket was $100 per person. And a local station wanted to do an experiment with him. And so they put him in the Metro subway station in Washington, D.C. and had him play music for about an hour. Now, he didn't play music just on any old violin. He played it on a Stradivarius worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $3.5 million dollars. You have the world's greatest, or one of the world's greatest violinists, one of the most prized violins in the world, and he played for about an hour, and six people stopped and did anything with him. He received, in donations that day, $32.17. And that included a $20 bill someone dropped in at the end when they finally recognized who he was. And their point was, so many people miss the greatness of this because our lives are just too busy. The truth is, it doesn't have to be busyness. It can be just life happening that causes us to miss 
something extraordinary in the midst of normal. And so today I want to talk about a story of two people that got an unexpected gift around the first Christmas. And some unexpected gifts are good, like you're not expecting something and then it happens. Like all of those ridiculous commercials this time of year where somebody goes out, a husband buys a car, matching car for him and his wife without having consulted his wife. That is not reality. Amen. Like with the bows on the top, you know. And they're not, they're not buying like 1998 Camrys either. They're buying like top of the line now, right? The huge bows cost more than most people spend on the Christmas gifts for people in their family. Like, like unexpected gifts sometimes can be great. I remember the first year that I got a CD player stereo. Something I didn't ask for. My mom and dad had decided that that was part of what they were going to do. We're opening gifts and it was there. A CD six disc changer. And it was like top of the line. Blow the windows out of the local Sears. All right. It was awesome. Right. I just said a lot of words that young people around here don't know anything about. Right. It was awesome. It was an unexpected gift. But sometimes unexpected gifts aren't good. Like the transition year when you're a kid and you have that relative that always gives you the great toys and this year you got a belt it's a good belt but it's not what you expected right unexpected gifts can be good or bad the first christmas was definitely unexpected but it was definitely not disappointing luke chapter 2 starting in verse 22. Now, just so you know, right before this in verse 21, if you've got your Bibles open, you can see that in a way that you can read it, that they had just taken Jesus after the eighth day to be circumcised, just like John we read about last week. So we've kind of jumped ahead in the story. We're going to come back to the angel song next week, but we've jumped ahead in the story to the end kind of of this birth narrative, infancy narrative. And it says that they've taken him, they circumcised him, they've given the name Jesus. That is what the angel had told him. Verse 22. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the uh, the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice, according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now here's what happened. So there were two or three kind of ways that you went about this. Every child that was born had to be taken and named. Every male had to be circumcised, had to be named on the eighth day in a situation in your local kind of place, in your um, local synagogue with your local rabbi. You went and you did that as a ceremony. Then there were purification rites that had to last for a while after a birth. And once that was over, if it was your firstborn male then you had to take that child to Jerusalem, to the temple in Jerusalem. And at the temple of Jerusalem, you had to offer a sacrifice to the Lord in honor of your firstborn male. Now, the reason for that is because it was a reminder to the people about the fact 
that God had passed over the firstborn males of the Israelites during the Passover. You remember that story in Exodus, right? Where they put the blood over the doorpost and the angel, the death angel, passed over them and brought death and destruction to the firstborn of all the houses of Egypt. It was right before they were released. It was the thing that they celebrated every year. It was the high point of the Jewish celebration calendar was the Passover meal and celebrating what God had done and delivering them from Egypt. And so as a recognition of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's hesed, all-consuming, always there love, they would give a offering to the Lord when their firstborn had been son, firstborn son had been born as an offering of dedication to him. Now there's an important little part in here that is a side note for this particular message but is important. What does it say there in verse 24 that they gave as a sacrifice according to the law of the Lord? They gave turtle doves or two young pigeons, right? It says that they brought him up to Jerusalem and they printed and they gave and they offered these to them. Just so you know, the law of the Lord does not state that that was to be the offering given unless you could not afford the offering that was to be given. The offering was to be a lamb, obviously as a reference to the lamb's blood that was spread on the doorpost. But if you were unable financially to afford a lamb or to have your own, then you could offer this as a way to fulfill your offering to the Lord and not make you in debt to someone else. Now what does that tell us? Again, it was a side note to this, this message. It tells us, first of all, that Jesus was born into poverty. Into a level of financial status that was lower than the normal of that area. Now that shouldn't be surprising. We talk all the time about how he is born to Joseph and Mary in a scandalous way in a community that would have made them outcasts where Joseph is just beginning his work in life and Mary has not done anything really. She's growing into that role. They didn't have anything. They were poor, impoverished. Sometimes as Americans, we we have this image of Jesus that he is like us. And here's the reality. First of all, from a Holy Spirit's perspective, he is not. But just to be honest, from a socioeconomic cultural status, Jesus was born in a world that is completely different than ours. Born in the Middle East to a couple of outcast parents by this point who were so impoverished that they could not even afford the normal offering for their firstborn son. It also makes me think just about Philippians chapter 2, one of the earliest hymns about Jesus, when it says that he humbled himself and became a servant, a servant who was willing to die. Part of that humbling is... He didn't come to, to use the phrases of today, a middle class Jewish family in a nice suburb of Jerusalem. He came to a teenager and her engaged to be married. They're married by this point. Husband who were impoverished in the backwoods of Israel. 
He could have chosen any situation to put himself into. And that's what he chose. Because he wanted us to know, as Hebrews talks about, that he has experienced a life with turmoil and with difficulty. Like us. Even when we may not be like him in our poverty, we understand that he has lived in the rough and tumble part of history. And so they go and they present him. Now again, we're talking about this time that they've gone to Jerusalem, they've gone to the temple, they've gone to the place there would have been lots of people milling around, sacrificing. Uh, You can imagine every time somebody had a firstborn, they had to go do this. There were other rites that had to be done. There were daily rites that had to be done. We talked last week about... um, Zechariah going up and being able to do that one time in his life. That all kind of stuff is milling around. And in the midst of that, it says in verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Now, there's a word in there we don't use a whole lot. Consolation. It just means he's looking for deliverance. He's looking for God's promises to be fulfilled. He is looking for God to do what God has said he would do. Verse 26. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, verse 27, he entered the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to perform for him what was customary under law... Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said... Now, I want you to get the picture here. Think about this for a moment, right? Mary and Joseph, they're coming in. They're a little bit of outcasts. They've walked through this journey, but all we know on their own, they've gone. They've followed all the procedures. They're doing what God has called them to do. They walk in. I am sure at this point in life, as many of you who have been parents know, we're probably a few weeks into a child. Now all the happy days of, woo, we have a baby and it's beautiful and we're loving, we're on cloud nine, have turned into sleepless nights of what have we gotten ourselves into? Can I get an amen in the congregation? Y'all acted like that's not a real thing, all right? Can I get an amen in the congregation? Amen, right? Like Like all that's going, the weariness is there. And while they're there, a man runs up to them and grabs their baby. Right? Now, we're used to... Just be honest, grandmotherly types coming up, wanting to kiss your baby or hold your baby or say things about your baby. Just a cute little baby ever seen. Like, can't believe, look at that baby. We're not used to older men just running up and grabbing our babies. He grabs the baby and he starts to sing. Now, this would be, I believe, part of what God is doing here. Yes, he is fulfilling a promise he made to Simeon. He is also reminding Mary and Joseph of what's going on. And he sings. Says he took him in his arms, praised God, and said, or a better translation of that is proclaimed or sang. Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. He says, You can let me go. I can die. Because I have seen the promised one. A light of revelation for the Gentiles prophesied about, particularly in Isaiah, that God would send a light and that that light would be included not only for the people of God, but for those that were outside the family of God. 
Verse 33 says, his father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary. This is a strange thing to tell a mother. Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There's somebody else around there too. A prophetess named Anna. Verse 36. A daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years. How well along? She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. Now you put those two together, okay? 84 plus 7. That, that, can y'all do some math real quick? That's what, 91? Okay, 91. Think about this. If she married at 15, which would have been around that area, that's 106. When it says she's well advanced in years, she was well advanced in year in a society where the average lifespan was somewhere in the late 40s to early 50s. One of the things as a pastor that I've seen over almost 20 years of pastoring now, one of the things that I've seen is that there are numerous times where I will have conversations with people that have lived longer than their friends, their church friends, their family. One of the things they'll ask is, what what, what is God still wanting to do with me? What's God's purpose for my life? Can you imagine in that day and age, nobody that she knew when she was young, nobody that knew her husband was around 87 years. And all of a sudden, 84 years, sorry, 105, 6, 7, 8, whatever it may be, she's there. Verse 27 tells us, She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, now in just a moment, I want to talk about what these two people teach us, but I want us to think just for a moment about Mary and Joseph in this moment. As I mentioned, they're tired. They're worn out. They've had journeys. They've been from their hometown to Bethlehem, back to their hometown, from their hometown, back to Jerusalem, going back. Like They will eventually go to Egypt. This is a wearying time for a young couple with their first child. And they're in the midst of just trying to figure it out, follow the law, do what they're supposed to do. And they're wondering about, is it worth it? Is this what God intended? And in the midst of that, an old man and an old woman come And confirm to them what God is doing in their lives. Now let's think about the other way. This older man, this older woman, who had waited for years for God's promise to come. And God delivers on his promise. Two or three lessons that I see in this passage for us as we think about. This passage of scripture and what it means for us during this Advent season and life in general. And the first one is this. Waiting effectively is a key to living the Christian life. We live in an instant society. Anybody know what the most popular gift has been for the last couple of years around Christmas time? It's the instant pot. Because we want pot roast in 30 minutes. Right? How many of you have an instant pot? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We we had we got one last year. 
right? Throw it in there, put it on two minutes, and wait an hour and a half for it to pressurize, and then it'll be ready in five minutes, all right? Like, we want it now. We, we can't wait for a slow cooker. Like, that's old school. We need the instant pot. And yet we see in Scripture again and again and again that following the Lord is not an instant thing. Following the Lord is not something that happens just right off the bat. It happens instantly. It's something that takes time. You can think about all the stories in Scripture where people waited on the Lord. Noah, who is waiting for the waters to recede after he waited through the building of the ark. Abraham, who has promised a child and yet waits until he's a hundred years old to see that promise fulfilled. Joseph, who finds himself in jail and is waiting on the deliverance of the Lord from that. The Israelites who, before Joseph, are in Egypt that are crying out to the Lord, asking for something to happen. Moses, who is the answer to the prayer of the Israelites to be delivered, and yet he has to wait 40 years in the wilderness before he comes back to lead the people out. And then he has to wait and never sees the promised land 40 more years in the wilderness with the people of God. Hannah, who waited on a child. Job, who waited through trials and temptation. David, who waited to become king of Israel even when he had been anointed much earlier. Daniel, who waited on the Lord to deliver him time and time again. And through it all, the Lord tells us that he blesses those that wait upon him. Lamentations 3.25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Isaiah 30.18. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Isaiah 49.23. Those who wait for me will not be put to shame. Part of living the Christian life is waiting. Effectively in the midst of that. You see, in Scripture, it never says that waiting is sitting around doing nothing until the Lord says go do something. That it is actively pursuing, actively believing, actively serving, actively calling on the Lord to fix what is going on, to find an answer. But it's also working in the midst of it. Maybe for you, as you're thinking through this Christmas, there is something that you're waiting on. Perhaps it is a waiting to end whatever this pandemic is going to look like at the end so that you can be in a place with people that you love that you haven't been able to see. Maybe it's uh, reuniting with family or maybe it's it's experiencing something in life that you're looking forward to in the next few months. Maybe you're waiting on a job offer or waiting on a promotion or waiting on a raise or you're waiting on a restitution of a relationship. You're waiting on something important to you and it feels like you've been waiting Waiting for a long time. And yet scripture teaches us that the timetable of God is often very different than our own timetable. That God's timetable is often years, months, decades longer than we would prefer it to be. All of us are waiting For the second advent to happen. In fact Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said. The advent season is a season of waiting. But our whole life is an advent season. It's a season of waiting for the last advent. For the time there will be new heaven and new earth. The older I get. The the more I long for the coming of Christ to happen. Here and now. Right away. Just this past Friday. I stood at... um, 
the graveside of another one of our church members was Martha Gray, who passed away. And uh, family gathered around and read that passage out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that talks about the fact that those of us who are still alive when Christ comes will not precede those who have gone on in death, but that we will meet up together in the sky. And as we meet up together in the sky, we will be with the Lord forever and comfort one another with those words. And just in that moment, for whatever reason, it hit me again. I was crying out, come quickly. Lord Jesus. We're all waiting on the Lord. It's a couple of thousand year wait now for the return of Christ. But in the midst of that, we live out our lives for Him. What I love about Simeon, what I love about Anna is that they have been waiting on the Lord for years. And Anna is still at that temple serving day after day after day after day, waiting on the consolation of the Lord. Simeon is there looking, God, could it be today? Is today the day you answer my prayers? Today today you let me see the hope? Now, I'm going to tell you in just a moment, we'll talk about this. I don't think either one of them, when they started this process, thought it's going to be a baby of a family that can't even even afford the lamb that we're going to be looking forward to. And yet in that moment, God revealed that their waiting was worth it. And that's the truth. We have a promise-keeping God. And just because sometimes He delays His promises does not mean that they will go unfulfilled. Let's do just to the second observation from this passage. Many times, God's plan does not match my expectations. There are many times that God's plan for my life is not what I would have expected. And my guess is this is not what they thought they needed either. Was this child to an outcast couple that was too poor to afford the normal sacrifice. And yet, that's what God provided for them. For those of you that are waiting on an answer, waiting on something to come, waiting for the Lord to do something in your life, can I just suggest that you ought to be looking for anything possible that could be the answer to that situation because God's answer to your prayers and your waiting probably is going to be different than you expect it to be. We think we know exactly what we need or what we want or what could be good for our lives, and yet God knows infinitely more than we do. And so we ask the question, what is it that we really need? What does God know that we need? I love this quote that, I don't know if it's original with Tim Keller. I've heard it with Tim Keller where he says, Sometimes God answers our prayers by giving us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. So if God has all knowledge and it's all together, we ask in limited knowledge with limited understanding. And we ask God and God sometimes goes, yeah, that's not what you need. Here's what you need. Here's what's best for the kingdom of God. Here's what's best for your character development. Here's what's best for your family. Here's what's best. Yes, I'll answer that prayer in a way that you don't expect. And this is the last thing we see in this passage, and then we're done. As we think about peace at Christmas time, we talked about it a little bit last week. Peace comes from seeing Jesus for who he is. Now we go back to the song here, and In my actual version of Scripture, and I'm using the CSB, it's not kind of marked out like the other songs of Scripture are, but it's there. It's a song. It's written in a psalm sort of way. 
And he declares that this child that he is holding, that he has picked up from the parents, is salvation in the presence of the peoples. A light to the Gentiles and a glory to your people. He is a savior for the world. He is the hope of redemption. He is God's love incarnate here for all people in all places at all times to understand what God desires from this. And because of that, he says in verse 29, you can dismiss your servant in peace. Wholeness, completeness. I have everything together. We live in a world where people are constantly searching for peace in their lives, for wholeness in their lives. And Scripture reminds us again and again and again and again. Here with Simeon we see it. That true peace only comes from understanding who Jesus is and surrendering your life to Him. In every aspect of who you are, in every aspect of what you do, in every aspect of the way that God moves in your life. What I also think is interesting here is not only does Simeon give praise there, but when he's talking to Mary, he blesses the family and then says to her that this child, part of seeing Jesus for who he is, is to understand that because of the nature of Jesus, this God-man that is all there, 100% God, 100% man, who comes and dies for our sins, that he would be a dividing line in history. Not only would our literal calendar be divided by the date that he was born, but also we see that what is happening here is that people would find themselves on one side or the other when it comes to following Christ. And it's the most important decision that anyone will ever make. So my question to you this morning is, first of all, do you have that peace? Do you have the peace that comes only from knowing who Christ is and surrendering your life to Him? Do you have that peace that comes from living and understanding who God is and living that out in your life? And if not, would you be willing to at least talk about, think through, are you ready to accept the free gift of grace that comes through Jesus Christ, through this baby in the manger who would become a Savior who died on the cross, perfect sacrifice for our sins. The second question is, what are you waiting for? What is it that you're asking God and He hasn't delivered yet and you're looking forward to and are you willing for that to be an answer that you don't expect? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you thankful that you are a promise-keeping God that always takes care of what you tell us you will. And Lord, we know that sometimes that means that it doesn't happen in ways that we would expect, but sometimes it happens in ways that we would never expect. And so we pray that, Lord, we would be willing and always open to understanding who you are and what you've called us to be. Lord, we pray that we would be willing to wait with expectation about what you would call us to do, how you would have us to live our lives passionately devoted to what you are doing. And we pray most of all, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we wait. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.